Section 4 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner Written by Himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The very next time that George was engaged at tennis, he had not struck the ball above twice till this same intrusive being was again in his way. The party played for considerable stakes that day, namely a dinner and wine at the Black Bull Tavern, and George, as the hero and head of his party, was much interested in its honor. Consequently, the sight of this moody and hellish-looking student affected him in no very pleasant manner. Pray, sir, be so good as keep without the range of the ball, said he. Is there any law or enactment that can compel me to do so, said the other, biting his lip with scorn? If there is not, they are here that shall compel you, returned George. So, friend, I read you to be on your guard. As he said this, a flush of anger glowed in his handsome face and flashed from his sparkling blue eye. But it was a stranger to both, and momently took its departure. The black-coated youth set up his cap before, brought his heavy brows over his deep dark eyes, put his hands in the pockets of his black plush breeches, and stepped a little farther into the semicircle, immediately on his brother's right hand, than he had ever ventured to do before. There he set himself firm on his legs, and with a face as demure as death, seemed determined to keep his ground. He pretended to be following the ball with his eyes, but every moment they were glancing aside at George. One of the competitors chanced to say rashly in the moment of exultation, That's a damned fine blow, George! on which the intruder took up the word as characteristic of the competitors and repeated it every stroke that was given, making such a ludicrous use of it that several of the onlookers were compelled to laugh immoderately. But the players were terribly nettled at it, as he really contrived, by dint of sliding in some canical terms, to render the competitors and their game ridiculous. But matters at length came to a crisis that put them beyond sport. George, in flying backward to gain the point at which the ball was going to light, came inadvertently so rudely in contact with this obstreperous interloper that he not only overthrew him, but also got a grievous fall over his legs. And, as he arose, the other made a spurn at him with his foot which, if it had hit to its aim, would undoubtedly have finished the course of the young laird of Dal Castle and Belgrenin. George, being irritated beyond measure, as may well be conceived, especially at the deadly stroke aimed at him, 
struck the assailant with his racket, rather slightly, but so that his mouth and nose gushed out blood. And at the same time, he said, turning to his cronies, Does any of you know who this infernal puppy is? Do you know, sir, said one of the onlookers, a stranger? The gentleman is your own brother, sir, Mr. Robert Ringham Colwain. No, not Colwain, sir, said Robert, putting his hands in his pockets and setting himself still farther forward than before. Not a Colwain, sir. Henceforth, I disclaim the name. No, certainly not, repeated George. My mother's son you may be, but not a Colwain. There you are right. Then, turning around to his informer, he said, Mercy be about us, sir. Is this the crazy minister's son from Glasgow? This question was put in the irritation of the moment, but it was too rude and far too out of place and no one deigned any answer to it. He felt the reproof, and felt it deeply. Seeming anxious for some opportunity to make an acknowledgment or some reparation. In the meantime, young Ringham was an object to all of the uttermost disgust. The blood flowing from his mouth and nose he took no pains to stem. Neither did he so much as wipe it away, so that it spread over all his cheeks and breast, even off at his toes. In that state did he take up his station in the middle of the competitors, and he did not now keep his place, but ran about, impeding everyone who attempted to make it the ball. They loaded him with execrations, but it availed nothing. He seemed courting persecution and buffetings, keeping steadfastly to his old joke of damnation, and marring the game so completely that, in spite of every effort on the part of the players, he forced them to stop their game and give it up. He was such a rueful-looking object, covered with blood, that none of them had the heart to kick him, although it appeared the only thing he wanted. And, as for George, he said not another word to him, either in anger or reproof. When the game was fairly given up, and the party were washing their hands in the stone fount, some of them besought Robert Ringham to wash himself. But he mocked at them, and said he was much better as he was. George, at length, came forward abashedly towards him, and said, I have been greatly to blame, Robert, and I am very sorry for what I have done. But, in the first instance, I erred through ignorance, not knowing you were my brother, which you certainly are. And, in the second, through a momentary irritation, for which I am ashamed, I pray you, therefore, to pardon me, and give me your hand. As he said this, he held out his hand towards his polluted brother, but the fro-war pedestinarian took not his from his breeches pocket, but lifted his foot, 
He gave his brother's hand a kick. I'll give you what will suit such a hand better than mine, said he, with a sneer. And then, turning lightly about, he added, Are there to be no more of these damned fine blows, gentlemen? For shame to give up such a profitable and edifying game. This is too bad, said George, but since it is thus, I have the less to regret. And having made this general remark, he took no more note of the uncouth aggressor. But the persecution of the latter terminated not on the playground. He ranked up among them, bloody and disgusting as he was, and keeping close by his brother's side, he marched along with the party all the way to the Black Bull. Before they got there, a great number of boys and idle people had surrounded them, hooting and incommoding them exceedingly, so that they were glad to get into the inn. And the unaccountable monster actually tried to get in alongst with them, to make one of the party at dinner. But the innkeeper and his men, getting the hint, by force prevented him from entering, although he attempted it again and again both by telling lies and offering a bribe. Finding he could not prevail, he set to exciting the mob at the door to acts of violence, in which he had liked to have succeeded. The landlord had no other shift at last but to send privately for two officers and have him carried to the guardhouse, and the hilarity and joy of the party of young gentlemen for the evening was quite spoiled by the inauspicious termination of their game. The Reverend Robert Ringham was now to send for, to release his beloved ward. The messenger found him at table, with a number of the leaders of the Whig faction, the Marquis of Annandale being in the chair, and the prisoner's note being produced. Ringham read it aloud, accompanying it with some explanatory remarks. The circumstances of the case being thus magnified and distorted, it excited the utmost abhorrence, both of the deed and the perpetrators, among the assembled faction. They declaimed against the act as an unnatural attempt on the character and even the life of an unfortunate brother who had been expelled from his father's house. And, as party spirit was the order of the day, an attempt was made to lay the burden of it to that account. In short, the young culprit got some of the best blood of the land to enter as his securities, and was set at liberty. But, when Ringham perceived the plight that he was in, he took him as he was, and presented him to his honorable patrons. This raised the indignation against the young laird and his associates a thousandfold, which actually roused the party to temporary madness. They were, perhaps, a little excited by the wine and spirits they had swallowed, else a casual quarrel between two young men at tennis could not have driven them to such extremes. But certain it is that, 
from one at first arising to address the party on the atrocity of the offense, both in a moral and political point of view. On a sudden, there were six on their feet at the same time, expatiating on it, and in a very short time thereafter, everyone in the room was up talking with the utmost vociferation, all on the same subject, and all taking the same side in the debate. In the midst of this confusion, someone or other issued from the house, which was at the back of the cannon gate, calling out, A plot! A plot! Treason! Treason! Down with the bloody incendiaries at the Black Bull! The concourse of people that were assembled in Edinburgh at that time were prodigious, and as they were all actuated by political motives, they wanted only a ready-blown coal to set the mountain on fire. The evening being fine, and the streets thronged, the cry ran from mouth to mouth through the whole city. More than that, the mob that had of late been gathered to the door of the Black Bull had, by degrees, dispersed. But they being young men, and idle vagrants, they had only spread themselves over the rest of the street to lounge in search of further amusement. Consequently, a word was sufficient to send them back to their late rendezvous, where they had previously witnessed something they did not much approve of. The master of the tavern was astonished at seeing the mob again assembling, and that with such hurry and noise. But his inmates, being all of the highest respectability, he judged himself sure of protection, or at least of indemnity. He had two large parties in his house at the time, the largest of which was of the revolutionist faction. The other consisted of our young tennis players and their associates, who were all of the Jacobite order, or, at all events, leaned to the Episcopal side. The largest party were in a front room, and the attack of the mob fell first on their windows, though rather with fear and caution. Jingle went one pane, then a loud hurrah, and that again was followed by a number of voices endeavoring to restrain the indignation from venting itself in destroying the windows and to turn it on the inmates. The Whigs, calling the landlord, inquired what the assault meant. He cunningly answered that he suspected it was some of the use of the Cavalier or High Church party exciting the mob against them. The party consisted mostly of young gentlemen, by that time in a key to engage in any row, and at all events to suffer nothing from the other party, against whom their passions were mightily inflamed. The landlord, therefore, had no sooner given them the spirit-rousing intelligence than everyone, as by instinct, swore his own natural oath, and grasped his own natural weapon. A few of those of the highest rank were armed with swords, which they boldly drew. Those of the subordinate orders immediately flew to such weapons as the room, kitchen, and scullery afforded, 
such as tongs, pokers, spits, racks, and shovels. And breathing vengeance on the prelatic party, the children of Antichrist, and the heirs of damnation. The barterers of the liberties of their country, and betrayers of the most sacred trust. Thus elevated, and thus armed, in the cause of right, justice, and liberty. Our heroes rushed to the street and attacked the mob with such violence that they broke the mass in a moment and dispersed their thousands like chafe before the wind. The other party of young Jacobites, who sat in a room farther from the front and were those against whom the fury of the mob was meant to have been directed, knew nothing of this second uproar till the noise of the sally made by the Whigs assailed their ears. Being then informed that the mob had attacked the house on account of the treatment they themselves had given to a young gentleman of the adverse faction, and that another jovial party had issued from the house in their defense, and was now engaged in an unequal combat, the sparks likewise flew to the field to back their defenders with all their prowess, without troubling their heads about who they were. A mob is like a spring tide in an eastern storm that retires only to return with more overwhelming fury. The crowd was taken by surprise when such a strong and well-armed party issued from the house with so great fury, laying all prostate that came in their way. Those who were next to the door, and were, of course, the first whom the imminent danger assailed, rushed backwards among the crowd with their whole force. The black bull, standing in a small square, halfway between the high street and the cowgate, and the entrance to it being by two closes, into these the pressure outwards was simultaneous, and thousands were moved to an involuntary flight. They knew not why. But the high street of Edinburgh, which they soon reached, is a dangerous place in which to make an open attack upon a mob. And it appears that the entrances to the tavern had been somewhere near to the cross, on the south side of the street, for the crowd fled with great expedition, both to the east and west, and the conquerors, separating themselves as chance directed, pursued impetuously wounding and maiming as they flew. But it so chanced that, before either of the wings had followed the flying squadrons of their enemies for the space of a hundred yards each way, the devil and enemy they had to pursue. The multitude had vanished like so many thousands of phantoms. What could our heroes do? Why, they faced about to return towards their citadel, the Black Bull. But that feat was not so easily nor so readily accomplished as they divined. The unnumbered alleys on each side of the street had swallowed up the multitude in a few seconds. But from these they were busy reconnoitering and perceiving the deficiency in the number of their assailants. The rush from both sides of the street was as rapid 
and as wonderful as the disappearance of the crowd had been a few minutes before. Each close vomited out its levies, and these better armed with missiles than when they sought it for a temporary retreat. Woe, then, to our two columns of victorious Whigs! The mob actually closed around them as they would have swallowed them up, and in the meanwhile, shower after shower of the most abominable weapons of offense were rained in upon them. If the gentlemen were irritated before, this inflamed them still further. But their danger was now so apparent they could not shut their eyes on it. Therefore, both parties, as if actuated by the same spirit, made a desperate effort to join, and the greater part effected it. But some were knocked down, and others were separated from their friends, and blithe to become silent members of the mob. End of section 4